Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Desert Island Dishes with me, Margie. I recorded this episode last week, but by the magical powers of the internet, I will be on a little holiday in New York by the time you listen to this, which is very exciting. I'm expecting by the time I come back, I will be 98% pancake and probably 2% maple syrup. I am the biggest master chef geek, which I think really comes out in today's episode. And I completely geeked out over the trophy. I wanted more than anything to pose with it, but having my photo taken is not one of my favorite things that I chickened out. Anyway, Droov was absolutely lovely. And this episode made me really hungry. You have been warned. So today's castaway is Dhruv Baker. Dhruv not only took part in MasterChef back in 2010, but he went on to win the series and his career has gone from strength to strength since then. He's published a cookbook, presented TV programs and regularly writes recipes for magazines. Dhruv went to work in some of the UK's top kitchens, including Le Gavroche with Michelle Rue Jr. and The Connaught, before starting his own catering company, The Earlsfield Kitchen, which covered everything from fine dining to barbecues, before eventually getting their own premises at the Jolly Gardeners in Earlsfield. John Tarode said Dhruv had a talent that very few people will ever have, and Greg Wallace added, that Dhruv is probably one of the most amazing talents he's ever seen. And he has the palette of an angel. So welcome, Dhruv. (laughs) Thank you. I've thoroughly embarrassed you there. Very embarrassed. (laughs) I feel like I'm blushing. And it's, it never gets any easier to hear. I know they're wonderful, wonderful things, but I find it so embarrassing to hear them. But um, at the same time, don't mind hearing them. Yeah, no, never a bad thing. Also, I've embarrassed you doubly because I've made you bring your master chef trophy to the table. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm glad you did because it it lives in the dining room and so rarely gets out and to meet people. So I'm sure it'd be um, delighted to have been, yeah. been brought out. Into I the- would literally have that out all the time and would just be showing it to everyone. So I think you're very modest. Yeah. In case I lose. Yeah, that's that's very sensible. So let's go right back to the beginning. You were a successful sales director at the time. What made you decide to apply for MasterChef in the first place? Well, food had always, I don't know, it sounds cliched, but it'd been, it had been my passion. It was what I did on the weekends. I'd think nothing of spending all day Saturday in food markets and then cooking all day Sunday for Sunday dinner. So spending two days to cook a meal was, was normal. Yeah. Um, and it's how I unwound and relaxed and I gen, and I'd read cookbooks instead of novels and it was, you know, that kind of thing. But food had never been a, a realistic or a viable career choice. You know, it was, you went to school, you went to university, you got a proper job in inverted commas uh, and that was it. And, and I had a proper job, but I was bored witless. And one day I'd had a meeting cancel and I was complaining about being bored. My wife and a good friend said, um, why didn't you do something constructive like apply for MasterChef? And I thought, well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Hung up, thought, why not? Yeah. Googled our MasterChef application, filled out this form, which had been scanned sort of wonkily onto a page. So I didn't even know if it was relevant or live and sent it off. And that was that. And then obviously the process then was set in motion. But that was it. It was because I was bored. And because my wife and a very good friend told me to do it. That's so cool. I love stories like that because it shows really good stuff can come just off a whim. Like you didn't think about it too much. You just went for it. And yeah, and it's one of those things where it just feels like it was there was so many ridiculous coincidences throughout the process that after a while I used to be a real cynic and I used to say that, you know, 
fate and this and that is all complete cobblers. But I've got to say that now that I'm in my 40s and I can be like an old fart, yeah. I, I'm much more open towards <laughs> looking you know, back like in my day. Correct. <laughs> um, yours was a really good series, though, not just saying that to suck up. It's sort of one that's really stuck in my mind as being a great one, like the three finalists. I agree. And it's it was one down to the places that they chose. Yeah. But two, I think the main reason was the dynamic between the three of us. Yeah. And I've said it, I said it, then I'll say it now that on any given day, it could have been any one of us who would have won it or could have won it. And there was no real, there's nothing separating us on, on, if it had been another day and another, it could have been Tim. And if it had been another day, it could have been Alex. I mean, you were all really good, but I do remember thinking you had it in the bag, but it was really interesting because all of your food looked amazing but it was sort of the first time that I felt quite reliant on the judges to tell us what it actually tasted like. And I felt like they really came into their own in that series too. I, I think, I, I agree actually. I've never thought about it that way, but I think we had done stuff that hadn't been done before. Yeah. I mean, I genuinely think some of our dishes were incredibly well. And I think it was one of those instances where all three of us have gone on to do, you know, good. Tim has been phenomenal. Alex has been phenomenal. I think I'm a Hopefully, I'm going to hit my stride this year, which I'll tell you more about because okay, this is exciting. the most also, exciting thing that's happened. Okay. I mean, you have also hit many strides, so that's very modest. I honestly and genuinely don't feel like I have. Okay, but this is the first exciting. time I think I could. Okay. Well, that's very exciting. So you were born, I believe, in Mexico, where you lived until the age of four when your family then moved to India. So I'm really excited to hear your first desert island dish of the day, yes. which is the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Now, uh, a really difficult question, because obviously born in Mexico, but then formed to years were in India. But if I have to cast back my memory back to one of my earliest food memories and the smell of this will instantly transport me back, which is very bizarre, is mole. So the, the Mexican um, ancient dish, actually, it's hundreds and hundreds of years old, which is based, it's got peanuts and it's got cinnamon, um, lots and lots of different types of chilies and chocolate or cacao. So it's this deep, rich, um, very, very dark brown dish, traditionally served with poached turkey, mm. um, because turkeys come from Mexico originally. Yeah. Scattered with sesame seeds and it's, it's rich and it's savoury and it's sweet and it's hot. And it's a Marmite dish because people either love it or hate it. Yeah, I don't, I'm really embarrassed, but I don't think I've ever had it. Really? No. Right. Well, this, this sounds like there's definitely a follow up to this. Yeah. One. Um, <laughs> and th that with corn tortillas. And the first time I had it, it was at a friend's lunch party. My parents were at some official thing and I disappeared in the panic setting. And I was found in the garden with the gardener eating his packed lunch, <laughs> which was this eye wateringly hot mole with his corn tortillas and this assaulted corn tortilla would do it just as much in terms of cast me back to yeah that, time. that sounds delicious they were worried you disappeared but actually you were happy as larry eating exactly so i mean i did disappear a lot and in time they just realized just to find the nearest source of food yeah. and they'd probably find me there <laughs> so i read that you don't like to use the word fusion when describing food and i wondered how would you describe your style of food i think eclectic is probably a closer interpretation i mean the reason i don't like fusion is one it's laden with connotations yeah and a lot of people or instances where you've seen fusion done in the past has just been disastrous yeah and so i think the word became tainted but actually what does it really mean blending cuisines isn't a new thing you know a french chef 20 years ago using lemongrass was considered a nutcase <laughs> and we talk about people using spices in this country as a new thing but you know henry the kitchen would have been full of spices 
So really, I, I just, I have absolutely no qualms borrowing or leaning on different influences. And, and, and I think that's what I love doing as a cook is having inspirational recipes or ingredients and bringing them into my cooking. So yeah, um, I, I've never labeled it. And I think this was what people have said right from the outset is that the biggest problem I'm going to have is that people can't stick a flag in what I do and therefore don't understand it and can't pigeonhole it. And therefore it's merit, but at the same time, it's downfall because people don't get it until they've eaten it. Yeah, that's so true of lots of things in life. Like people like to be able to put you in a box and then, but yeah, and I think you're right. The phrase fusion does have negative connotations. But as a concept, you know, why the world, it's another cliche, but the world does get smaller every day. People do have access to ingredients that previously were impossible to get hold of. And now you can get them in Waitrose. So, you know, it's it's easily accessible or they are easily accessible. And I think as such, it makes it easier to kind of try your own hand at different stuff. I mean, I would I love being a purist. So I'll spend three, four, five weeks at a time focusing on one cuisine, a bit Japanese or Thai, but doing it meticulously focusing on it. But then, you know, in time, I might dip in and out of those cuisines and sort of bring them together in one to use that as a frid rage, uh, frid, fridge raid, not fridge rage. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that would be a different thing in time. Yeah, that's not a good look. <laughs> so I found something you said really interesting. You said that you cooked a dish on the show that contained quite a lot of spices. And then it was John and Greg that tasted it and just was completely blown away by it. And they kind of encouraged you to go further down that road. And that was really interesting because going on a show like that, you hope it is about learning and evolving. And and I, yeah, I thought that was interesting. I'd all, I've always cooked with spices because I grew up around them. Mum's Indian. I grew up, as you said, Mexico and Indian. So spices kind of proliferate both those cuisines. But, and I cook with them at home all the time, but I never thought that's what MasterChef wants to see. So I fell down, fell into the trap of trying to do classically French stuff or, or this or that. And once they said, you've got to, you know, you're on something here. It kind of unlocked something which I'd never done and the spice fish and chips and then the duck dish that that, that you sort of mentioned then. Um, it completely unlocked things, but did give me a direction. That became my pigeonhole for a while was the spice thing. And so the cookery book and was based purely on that because people are nervous, can be a bit hesitant about spices because they are big, bold flavours which can ruin dishes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, that was the point at which the, the, the sort of spice thing came about. That duck dish was really interesting. I mean, this is going to make me sound like a complete master chef obsessive, but um, you undercooked your rice and there was like a bit of a panic, but then they loved it so much. They didn't even mind that the rice wasn't cooked. And that's when I was like, oh my goodness, there's food. I need to taste it. They, uh, they did let me off the hook for that. Yeah. That's when you know you cook something really, really delicious. Yes. When they overlook the glaring texture. <laughs> so true. Let's move on to the second desert island dish of the day. And that is the first dish that you learned to cook. It was a cross between a scrambled egg, between scrambled eggs and omelette with various bits and pieces in it. And it was called a scramlet. Oh, on, on purpose? On pu- well, no, it, it started a <laughs> life as an omelette and ended up yeah. as a halfway between. Many omelettes have uh, suffered that fate. Yes. So that, that I mean, I, that was the, probably the first thing I remember cooking as on my own. But then I remember being taught it was like a beef stew. So plastic bag with seasoned flour and shaking beef in it and then cooking it. I mean, it was pretty dire. I remember it being pretty terrible. Really? Yes. 
Um, How old were you then? I was about 10. Okay. Oh, okay. Nine or 10. And I, I think it coincided with when I brought, I used to bring strange people home for lunch. You'd walk home from the bus and just invite <laughs> like a random builder you found on <laughs> right. the road. And Your mum must have loved that. Just stop doing this. <laughs> um, they never came back <laughs> because of this Because dish. of your cooking. Correct. Yeah. So that was the first <laughs> The first time I cooked and I was always intrigued, you know, I knew what a chicken and a cow and a pig were, but I wanted to know what happened to those things or what vegetables in order to come out onto the plate, onto the table as they did. But I was constantly being shooed out of kitchens. Nobody really wanted some small child weaving around their legs yeah. and stuff. So <laughs> yeah, a lot of time being chucked out of kitchens oh. while just kind of intrigued and curiosity, I think is the main driver for any cook. Definitely. So I remember you saying at the time that you used to watch MasterChef and think that it didn't look too tough, um, but that it's a completely different ball game when you're doing it. What was the hardest part? The cameras? The cameras you get over very quickly because they're, one, they're very experienced cameramen and they're not sort of in your face and you actually forget very quickly that they're there. Really? Um, which Even is, though they're like, Drew, what are you doing now? And you're like, um, they kind of let you get on with it. Okay. And you know, you know, I thought, well, they're going. To, there's going to be a whole lot of production value, and they're they're going to be creating jeopardy constantly by yeah. being around. And but the thing is, you put amateur cooks who are passionate but untrained into professional environments or timed environments, and the jeopardy just creates itself. Yeah. So the purity is, I think, the, there's no cash prize. So there's two elements of purity. One, there's no cash prize. So the motivation to enter are fairly clean, as in you're not doing it because it's going to give you yeah, one trillion pounds. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is they don't have to fudge it in any way because <laughs> amateur cooks will do it themselves. That's true. So there will be respect, fires. Sorry. There will be fires. There will be fires. <laughs> they will. Um, and there will be blood, as we've seen, yeah, yes. year in, year out, because it's just, and I think that's part of the the reason why it's lasted as long as it has is because it's not a manufactured show. Yeah. It's, it's very pure and it's very honest. And I was surprised at how much the end result reflected what actually happened. And that's it, so nice it's to hear. sort of like for like, obviously they have to cut it down. Yeah. You've got five cameras filming constantly for three days and you to get half an hour out of it, but it's incredibly accurate, an accurate depiction of what actually happens. That's really nice to hear. And yeah, probably is one of the reasons that it's so popular. Yeah, I think so. So you had some awesome challenges on your series, including a trip to India where you cooked in 100 degree heat. You cooked for royalty out there and then you came back and cooked for Alan Ducasse at the Dorchester. Which of those was the most stressful? Wow. Um, good question. The India episode was immensely stressful for a number of reasons. One, we were meant to have had two or three challenges spread over five days. So challenge, day off, challenge, day off. India being India and TV being TV for whatever happened. All the plans fell apart. So for the first three days, Tim Alex and I lay by a pool. Oh, Thinking, this is great. But then thinking, <laughs> hang on, we've got two days now to do three challenges, which doesn't stack up. And we ended up having to do the first thing in the morning cooking at the Maringir Fort and it was 100 degrees by eight o'clock oh my goodness and then so four or five hours there shower and back to do the next challenge which was at the palace so or at the school sorry so you know fitting in those three and two days was brutal um, yeah. really brutal but in terms of stress given the occasion oh how can you say what's harder cooking for his highness Jai, uh, Jodhpur or Alan Ducasse and five of his protégés. I mean... Both were terrifying. Yeah, they looked terrifying. Very scary. And, you know, they're some of the chefs I've respected the most for years. Claire Smith, Tom Kitchen, Alexi Gauthier, 
Claude Bosi. It was just this kind of who's who. Yeah, it really was. With Alan Ducasse himself there. When we saw him, I heard I heard uh, um, Alex actually gasp. Oh, no. And I thought, <laughs> I'm not going to look over, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's Sparko on the oh floor. <laughs> he's fainted. Um, so, Dhruv, this is a tough question, but it's the third desert island dish of the day. What is the best dish you've ever eaten? Wow. See, I've. it's so difficult because food is so subjective. Um, and to me, maybe my most, the best dish I've had isn't the most technical dish. Yeah. I mean, I still remember eating it, what was Petrus at the time, which was when it was Gordon. Oh, yeah. And Marcus. And I remember having a lobster ravioli. And at the time thinking this is probably the most perfect thing I've ever eaten. But actually, if I had to give you the best dish in my memory that I remember eating was in Goa. And it was the evening I proposed to my wife and we had they'd prearranged ridiculously elaborate meal up at the Taj. And it wasn't that. It was the following night. Oh. We had lobster <laughs> and the guys brought live lobsters to the table and it was a wobbly wooden table with a really ropey bottle of what was sold as champagne, but it was horrific. But this lobster was grilled and it had a spice butter and I'm sort of salivating yeah, me too. with chips. And that, toes in the sand, being able to see the sea is probably the perfect dish. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I mean, you kind of buried the lead on that one, but I'll forgive you because that, <laughs> that was a really good answer. Also, before we sat down, you were telling me that one of your friends had eaten something that was so good it made them cry. Yes. So they were in Japan and they spent, I think, two or three weeks in Japan. And there's this one restaurant they'd saved for the last meal there uh, and it was one of these very very small restaurants with you know hardly any covers at all and I think it's impossible to get into and yeah probably Michelin starred multiple starred and she said at the time that it was the first time they'd eaten something and actually started crying just silent tears oh my goodness and I think that sets the bench that sets the bar it really does or reaction to food I mean yeah if you make something and someone doesn't cry tears of happiness you haven't done you a good failed enough dismally. job it's yeah. like that movie like uh, water for chocolate chocolate for water I know what's the Mexican that? one where at the, it's all this magical realism and she she cries as she's making the base of her wedding cake and her tears go into the mix and at the wedding they eat this everybody's in tears because uh, their emotion is yeah. projected through the, the whole food baking with love correct yeah it's a magic ingredient <laughs> So this feels like a difficult question. Okay. But what's the best thing you've ever made yourself? Ooh. You know, oh. sometimes you do just make something and you're just like, that was yeah, great. that's it. <laughs> that is really, really tricky. I, I think last year, I remember I was, I was in the supermarket and I love seeing, at the, they used to do these forgotten cuts, they called them in Waitrose, which was the, the bits that, you know, no one ever bought. So they had pig's cheeks and shin and jowl and all these kind of bits and pieces and They'd priced down these short beef short ribs. And I thought, well, I quite like short ribs. I haven't cooked them in years. Yeah. And I braised them and I cooked them down for hours and hours and hours with port and stock, which I'd made and mushrooms. And there was mustard in there and Worcester sauce and all sorts of stuff. And I put half it aside and sort of let them cook down until they were incredibly sticky in this little glaze, which I strained and then had it with truffle and mash. And then what was left, I picked down and I turned into croquettes to have with Bernay sauce. And I think those marked down short ribs were probably... Yeah, that's how no one can see because of the podcast, but my mouth is wide open. <laughs> croquettes, you know, deep fried, what's not to like, and then slow, like melt, you know, with a spoon. With truffle mash. Silky mash. Oh, no, it was silky mash just with truffle shaved over the top of it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that, a that would very good answer. So after you won, mm. is it true that Gordon Ramsay offered you a job and simply said, just pick any one of his restaurants and you can work in it? I would love dearly to say it was true. But I, it's one of those instances say it is, where... Ruth. I, I, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to lie now. Uh, Gordon didn't. So somehow the papers had got this story and run with it. He did say you're an outstanding talent. Well, that was very kind of him. And I'd met him on a couple of occasions. And I was in a way disappointed because he was one of the most charming, lovely oh, people I'd he? ever met. And I was expecting this kind of brash, loud, shouting. and blinding. But he wasn't. He was just really supportive and charming. And he... I met him in the green room at one of the good food shows and he, he said, oh, I'm going to come and watch you. And he sat in the front row and he commented on it and he, he was very, very encouraging. And um, um, that's kind of stressful having him in the front row. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and then you've got Greg and John kind of shouting you to hurry up and you're cooking against one of the other winners and they're going to then judge which dish is better. Oh my God, that sounds so... like In the front most of 3,000 people in Birmingham at the like NEC. the most stressful ready, steady cook ever. Yes, it was. Right, Dhruv, my favourite question of the day. Okay. The fourth desert island dish. What is your favourite sandwich? Okay. Now, this I'm not going to struggle with. Okay. In my old life, actually, my first job out of university was in Soho on Berwick Street. Oh, just off Berwick Street on Great Pulteney Street. Mm-hmm. And we found this cafe around the corner, which was pretty tatty. And we used to go in there and myself, and my colleagues, we were, you know, early 20s in Soho working, thinking, you know, this is as good as it got. And yeah outdo each other with our our sandwiches and this sandwich <laughs> up until this point my favorite was a chicken escalate with melted cheese and avocado and tabasco so that was fine but yeah. this one we took it to, or i took it to another level so it's olive and focaccia yeah rare roast beef mustard emmental cheese tomatoes but soaked in basil oil yum have i said horseradish no uh, so horseradish and mustard mayo with gherkins. Oh my goodness! And this sandwich, people would have a bite of it. And if that Japanese, did you give people a bite? No, they'd see it and they'd go themselves. Yeah, it's gonna. And say. so it got to the point where everybody in the office was eating these things. And <laughs> you know, if that Japanese restaurant didn't, didn't bring a tear to your eye, this one would. <laughs> oh my god, that does sound like the sandwich of dreams. It it really was because you know we'd speak about what's the best sandwich and this and that and the other, but this is hands down. The greatest sandwich. So is that cafe still there? I might go and see it. Yeah. Uh, I might go and have a look and see Have a look and report back. Because if they didn't retire off the money they made yeah. from us selling <laughs> off those sandwiches. Probably living in the Maldives. Exactly. They've <laughs> duffed it somewhere. When you go on any show like MasterChef, you have to try and keep it on the down low. Is it true that you told everyone you were doing jury duty on a fraud trial? Yep. But if my friend told me that, I'd want to know everything. Financial fraud. Oh. <laughs> Tax evasion. Oh, so you chose something quite boring. Well, actually, what happened was I, I applied to MasterChef. I had a phone interview, which I thought was a friend winding me up because I told everyone I'd applied. Um, and then after about half an hour, I thought maybe it's not someone oh. winding me up. So I might stop being half so Half an hour is quite a long time for a friend. For a, to... <laughs> I've got committed friends when it comes to this kind of thing. Um, went and had a screen test. They then sent me a letter saying, you're through. You're as in you're on, not you're through with the process. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I told everyone, everyone that I was on. And then about two weeks after that, I got a letter saying, don't tell anyone. Oh. <laughs> right. Well, that timing is not brilliant. Um, so I got onto the show and then I had to come up with some kind of cover story. So it was, and I thought if it was a murder trial, yeah, then no, everyone would want to know. Nosy people like me would just hound you. And I'd start lying badly and I'd 
nick a plot from some crap film yeah didn't and, i see that on doctors yeah you say this is what this is neighbors you're just telling me what happened yesterday on neighbors no uh, so yes tax evasion is the way to go because okay. everybody would just shut down and go right that's fine so you told everyone you're on master chef and then you were like guys filming started oh i can't do it anymore because i'm on jury duty i, I said i failed i got i got kicked out on day one Oh, okay. And then the pitying, withering looks you get from everyone. Like, yeah, no, but then you can like milk the sympathy. No, it was that kind of thing. won. We just to get away as quickly <laughs> as possible. Yeah, but now you've got the trophy. Yes. <laughs> so, Drew, you have said, my spice cupboard is my haven, my treasure trove of flavor. What are the spices that you use the most that you couldn't live without? Fennel seed, coriander seed, star anise, vanilla, mm. cardamom, yeah. black pepper. Yeah. Yes. So with the seeds, yes. would you ever buy those ground or do you always grind them yourself? For convenience, buying them ground is, you know, there's a no brainer, but buy a packet of, buy a jar of, or open a jar of coriander seeds you've got, might have at home, ground coriander, and then in a cheap coffee mill, whiz up some seeds and smell the two and it's incomparable. So once you've done that, the difference between freshly ground and bought powdered spices yeah it's a different ballpark the if you whiz them up yourself you get this incredible this is just coriander seeds yeah um, florality and citric notes that you don't with the powdered stuff and it's just this incredibly vibrant immensely complex flavor and you just think actually that with butter and garlic and lemon on fish i'm sold um and you get to get to grips with the sort of inherent qualities and properties of each spice by doing that. Yes, I think that's something that not many people know. Like you just assume you buy the powder and it's that's the Absolutely. spice. But I think that's a really good tip for instantly improving the flavor mm. of your dishes would be to grind them yourself. And and don't, you know, pestle and water is great, but it is a bit of a faff. And also who And you have to be quite strong. It? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. whoever washes that completely. So you always have something that tastes of what you did previously. Yeah. Um, coffee mill, cheap one, 20 quid yeah. from wherever, or a spice grinder, which is effectively a coffee mill, but twice yeah. the price. <laughs> um, yeah, and just try it. And I guarantee you, they, they last longer as whole spices anyway. So yeah. you will yeah, increase the shelf life on them. Yeah. Yes. Um, so if someone was just dipping their toe into the world of spices, where what would be a good dish for them to start with? I think... Start, think of dishes which just have one spice. So let's, okay, the, the most simple dish I can think of is dal. Red lentils in a pan with water, teaspoon of cumin powder, teaspoon of turmeric, okay, that's two, salt and pepper and a chopped raw tomato. Bring that up to the boil and then the tomato is sort of falling apart. Season it, give it a stir and then add some fresh coriander through that. Then add a couple of dried chilies to it, which you can fish out at the end. Yeah. And then just start sort of building up those layers of flavours I've always spoken about. Yeah. Um, or the next time you make a pork casserole, just put in a couple of cinnamon sticks. Yes. Or star anise. You know, star anise and pork goes beautifully well together. So I would say use one or two spices in a dish and then add more and more and more to sort of build that complexity. But mulled wine at Christmas, star anise, cinnamon, vanilla pods. There, there's three spices. They're delicious. I have red wine, port, a bit of Cointreau, fresh orange juice, demerara sugar, and the vanilla sarnese and clove. Actually, stud the orange with clove. So, yeah. um, but then you can add c- cardamom. That was beautifully in, in that as well. So you know you can then change the the flavor it completely. So yeah, experiment with one and then just start 
building up until you're more comfortable with it. Yeah, not to be scared. Yeah, don't be scared. And you will make a mistake. You will have some catastrophic results. But, you know, I can't remember who said if you don't make mistakes, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I like that. Okay, right. Let's move on to the sixth desert island dish of the day. And that is your go-to dinner party dish. Right. This varies. This is very much uh, season, time of year and weather dependent. Mm -hmm. So during the summer or when it's warm, we spend all of our time outside and all of our dinners and lunches are outside. And a go-to dish as a starter is, it has to be the sort of very best Scottish salmon you can get, but raw salmon, sushi rice, ribbons of cucumber, which I pickle in a mixture of rice vinegar, palm sugar and star anise and just do a cold pickling liquid with that. A little bit of seaweed, and then I do a dressing, which is soy, sesame seed, sesame oil, and yuzu, a little bit of yuzu yeah. in that. So it's kind of citrusy soy dressing, and just over the top. So that's all it is. It's like this little kind of cold, raw fish, and it's just such clean. I love Japanese cooking because it has that kind of incredibly linear flavours, and I think that sets you up beautifully for a... Yeah, well, so that's like a delicious deconstructed sushi bowl. exactly that you know it's oh. a kind of you know it starts off life as a kind of hawaiian poke yeah but then stripped back so taking out some of the flavors i think actually cloud the salmon in this case but then you can add avocado to it i mean there's no end of it and this would make a great brunch dish but then go-to dishes tend to be on the barbecue oh i saw on your instagram an incredible looking piece of beef that you've done on the barbecue uh, roast all the sunday roasts are done on the barbecue veggies and all you know, everything I use on, on the barbecue. I think once people start thinking of a barbecue as a heat source, as opposed to a barbecue, then you think, well, actually, I can make risotto and soup. Oh, um, yeah. So um, do you do that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's so cool. So we'll do a risotto. Um, what, just the pan straight on the barbecue? Pan on the barbecue, do the risotto. While everyone's eating the risotto, get the meat onto it. So the meat starts cooking, starts is finished, meat comes off to rest. And then... That's a great idea. Um, I had desserts, never thought of that. Brownies, sticky toffee pudding. We, on the barbecue? On the barbecue. What? Yep. How? So, uh, what is this magic? Just have your brownie mix in a tray. While people are eating their main course, you just pop the tray onto the barbecue lid on. Hey, presto, beautiful warm brownies served with ice cream. Oh my God, Ruth, that sounds incredible. Well, that, I've, what are we thinking about winter barbecues? Uh, all over. Yeah. So, when yeah. I grew up, I used to, and we used to come over to the UK every summer for three months with dad's work as the kind of summer break and, or two months. And, I think people here were mad because every summer they'd wait for the hottest day and then huddle around a barbecue, yeah, that's so kicking true. out more heat. And I thought <laughs> in India we have barbecues and cook around fires when it's cold because you're warm, heated. And, you yeah, know, that makes way more sense. Yeah. So for years I just say I just think this is stupid, but I'm not going to say anything. So winter barbecues, uh, I'll probably do the turkey on the barbecue. English people are so weird. That is true. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, let's make winter barbecues like a. It should be a thing. Yeah, we're bringing them. I'm speaking to, I'm pitching the idea. Yeah, I like it. It's official. Okay, it's happening. So you've done so many exciting things in the years since MasterChef. Tell us, what are you up to now? What are the plans for the future? So it has, it's been a wonderful seven years, more, seven and a half years, which, uh, and there have been some just unbelievable situations. and Pinch me moments. And, exactly. And they happen with alarming regularity. So I'm immensely, immensely grateful, first of all, for that. And um Generally, these are very humbling situations you find yourself in as well. So, you know, I think the first thing is you've, you've just got to enjoy it and be grateful for it, as I said. But now what's coming next, my long term, my project, which is going to be my thing. This is this is I'm hoping is going to be what I am known for. Oh, my God, I feel so, so excited. What is it? 
Myself and my business partner, Tom Whitaker, who was MasterChef runner-up 2011. Yes. Runner-up to Tim Anderson. Yeah. So Tim, uh, Tom was the runner-up or, or the loser, as I like to introduce <laughs> him in meetings. Um, <laughs> and and I, he loves that. He does. He, he never found it funny. I've never found it boring <laughs> because there's nothing he can say. Um, is a, a charcuterie brand. So we have spent the last two or three years basically trying to rewrite the breeding program for one specific breed of pig, the yeah. large black, which was on the decline. It was very much in the de- in decline. You could have seen a situation in the not too distant future of it being extinct. Wow. So we've kind of worked with lots of farms and breeders and tried to get this breed back up and flourishing. And we are hopefully signing our lease on our unit next week. <gasps> Which oh is my a, goodness, that's amazing. Yeah, three and a half thousand square foot unit in Weybridge. The company's called Tempus, as in Latin for time. Nice. We are using only one varietal of pig. We are making, I think, nine products to use the whole. Well, we'll be selling originally through a company called Cannon and Cannon, um, Sean Cannon, who's been an immense support. And he actually tasted some of our samples that we've been making just for Tom and I. And he said, you need to be doing this professionally. <gasps> so we are. I sold the pub or sold my share in the pub. Tom and I sat down, we raised the money from investors. That's so exciting. And so, yes, we will be manufacturing charcuterie. So, yes, initially through Canon and Canon, but we'll be selling direct to delis, some restaurants. Yes, very much watch this space because if it goes the way we want it to go. Yeah, I'm, I'm just immensely surprised because uh, immensely excited about it. The purity of, of charcuterie, it's you're just maximizing the inherent and intrinsic quality of the meat so as a as a food purist it doesn't get any more distilled than that you know a chef you can add a bit more sauce or you can do this or you can compensate with that with this you can't there's nothing to compensate it's either it's outstanding or it isn't Uh, and that's down to we're adding fairly complex spice mixtures but in minuscule proportions to really elevate these so we're looking for spices that actually accentuate the porkiness if you yeah will. so it's you know the food geek side of me is, is porkiness a word it is now <laughs> <laughs> it's on tape it's on tape so it's real so very very excited about really that. excited so 2018 is going to be a really big year yes i mean we should have product ready by spring um you know the hams we make take longer they're about nine months but narrow gauge salamis and the induyas will be ready well yeah congratulations thank you yes keep an eye on the space definitely watch this space right Drew. we're on to the final desert island dish of the day that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island and by dish kind of means you're allowed three courses three courses oh yeah great now see i've been thinking about this one long and hard because there's the more i think about it the more i veer towards the simpler side of things so think about this. Am I allowed to choose wine as well? Yes, of course. So uh, fruit de mer platter, garlic butter, maybe saffron aioli to be a bit. Yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? Exactly. I'm not paying for this, <laughs> I'm assuming. I'm being banished. It's on me. <laughs> Excellent. So, you know, the best native oysters, Scottish longustine. Just, I, I think it's ridiculous. We live on this island and I think we have the best seafood on earth here and we export the vast majority of most of it to the continent lots of razor clams native lobsters oysters just a big drawn out starter with that yeah, lasting several hours several hours <laughs> something hellishly expensive and white and burgundian what, i think is this really on me maybe you just just have gruel <laughs> i think yeah yeah gruel but then that would have been a really if my answer had just been gruel <laughs> so yes seafood platter big feed platter and then for my main course 
in the same way that I think we have some of the best, if not the best, seafood in the world, I am convinced that we have the best meat in the world, and be it pork or lamb, but I'm going to have to go for beef and a very well-aged, I may as well have a T-bone because then I can get the fillet and the sirloin. Do it. Very, uh, you know, properly aged. And I'm talking like 45, 50 days. And that I would have with chips, maybe a little watercress salad as a token green and Bernays sauce. So basically (laughs) steak and chips, Bernays sauce. Maybe a little watercress. (laughs) For the greenery, I can just shove to one side. Pick it off. Yeah, no, no interest. Well, uh, yeah, so that, you know, it does a bit of pepperiness. So not we're not going to go crazy on the salad. And then dessert. I'm not really a big dessert man, so I'd probably go cheese. Drew, you are going to be really full. <laughs> I, hey, I've got I've got years and years of solitude it's and true. eating sand. Yeah, to, to, to no, it's true. Like a bear through. going into hibernation. Exactly. You need to, yeah. So yes, I'd say a, a beautiful cheese boards uh, of all sorts i mean i think we have great cheeses here but you can't not have come to with that and, oh my goodness no um, i might even have to have a little nod towards holland and some sort of aged duck so yeah yeah all the cheeses all the cheeses yeah. the, the 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 cheese trolley at shea bruce in wandsworth common is a thing of beauty if you mm, haven't been that's a good tip okay that sounds delicious what are you washing it down with so turn yeah i think great choice and if I wasn't going French, I'd probably go South African and go the Van de Constance, which is a quarter of the price or less, but I'm not paying for it. So no, I'm going to stick with the Sauternes. I was going to say, that's go, really kind. But... Ikem 82 then. <laughs> and thank you. And you're allowed one luxury item to take with you. What are you going to take? I think I might have to take a coffee machine. Okay. Stop a full-on espresso yep. machine. We'll find one that doesn't need plugging in yeah yeah we'll assume that that i don't run out of beans and yeah. that's it's no. obsolete Be like a magic coffee machine um, either that or a kind of infallible fishing kit yes which might help yeah one or the other one or the other yeah okay and with that we're gonna cast you off to the desert island thank you so much for letting us hear your desert island thank you very much so i said i've never tried mole but i must have done mustn't i I caused an uproar on my Instagram last week by admitting that I'd only just had my first cannoli. So I'm hoping my mole revelation doesn't have the same effect. Sorry, you guys. Winter barbecues need to happen. I feel foolish for wasting the last 30 years of my life by only having them in the summer. My barbecue is getting dusted off and I intend to cook brownies on it immediately, if not before. Can you imagine if I did actually have to pay for all of these meals? Literally, everyone would be getting gruel. (laughs) That's a joke, kind of. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. Do check out the website, www.desertislanddishes.co and come and find me on Instagram at Made by Margie. And I will see you next week when I'm back from New York. Bye.